All right. Well, welcome. Thank you for being here, everybody. It's good to be with you, of course, this morning. You can turn in Second Peter to Second Peter in your Bibles. I have a scroll here, the scroll of Hezekiah. Heads up. It's coming down. Oh, that didn't fly very far. So we are in Second Peter chapter 2. And by the way, on that note of communication, I got good communication this morning. You know how we often pray for one of our church partners in the opening, in the pastoral prayer? Our other churches pray for us too. So this morning, the Table Church and Pastor Cody Devers, which are close by here, we're praying for us. So that's good to hear. So know that as we pray for others, others pray for us. And that is an encouragement. So Second Peter chapter 2. We continue on in this chapter here. And Peter is going to continue speaking, as he did last week, with a lot of intensity, with great intensity, great fire, as he warns Christians of the dangers of false teachers. And I was thinking about, you know, why does he dedicate an entire chapter, 22 verses, an entire third of this book? This is only a three-chapter book. And he dedicates an entire third of this book to talking about false teachers. That's a, that's a lot. Right? And actually, even a little more, because a little bit into chapter 3, he talks about them. But why does he do that? Well, I believe this fiery speech and this dedication to describing and talking about these false teachers, for Peter, I think it comes out of a heart of pastoral love. He loves his people. He loves his congregation and his fellow Christians. And so that's why he's going to devote time to this. He recognizes that there is eternal danger in following the false teachers. And he wants his people and all of us to live free, joyful lives, lives that are destined for salvation ultimately. And last week we talked about, Peter says, the false teachers are going to enter into the church. They're going to seek people, and they're going to seek people out and pull you away from Jesus if possible. And today, Peter's going to continue on with that theme. He's going to reaffirm there is a judgment on these false teachers. There is a judgment coming on them. But we're going to dive more in depth into their mindset. How do these people think? And then what sins do they commit so that we can fully understand their deception and avoid it? Because our goal as Christians is to avoid it and counter it rather than fall into the trap and fall into the snare. But then I'm actually going to point out, I believe the most important theological thrust of this whole section is to show that false teachers promise a freedom to those who act like them. They promise you freedom but they give you the exact opposite. They actually accomplish the exact opposite and enslave their followers. And if you follow false teachings, unbiblical teachings, you too can be enslaved, just as these false teachers were enslaved by their sin. So I think that'll be the crux, the important point here today. Let's read starting in verse 10. And I'm going to read us 10 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back and start dissecting it. Verse 10, talking about the false teachers, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and they despise authority. Bold, arrogant people. They are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand. In their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. 
They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people, and they have hearts trained in greed, children under a curse. They've gone astray by following, by abandoning the straight path, and they have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Basor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. But these people, they're like streams without water, mists driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a mushed so or washed so returns to wallowing in the mud. Ooh, I mean, that's, that's harsh, right? Yeah, there's a lot of language in there. So many descriptive words, uh, even in the Greek. And there's so much to dissect. So I want to start by breaking it down, not, not so much in order, sort of, but more by topic. All right, first I want you to think about these false teachers and what is their mindset. So we're going to look at what is the mindset of the false teachers. Why do they deceive in the manner they do? Why do they think the way they think? Because, as with most people, the error begins in the mind and it flows out into the body. Their flawed and and sinful thought process leads them into various sins. The very first thing we're told, verse 10, was that they despise authority. They despise authority. Now, this could also be translated as they despise lordship. They despise kingship, kingship of Jesus. And many people, you know, despise authority. We have commands in the Bible about respecting the authority of our parents, respecting the authority of a God-appointed government, or even respecting the authority of the church. You know, the church has an authority to keep the body pure, to declare people in or out. And so there are these levels of authority that we can despise or disrespect because to submit to authority, it means that you are accountable to someone for the way you behave. If you have an authority over you and you must submit to them, you are, in a sense, accountable. And our sinful nature leads us to oftentimes not want to be accountable to anyone or anything. But in this context, the despising authority indicates they despise the sovereign lordship and authority of Jesus. That's the context we're talking about here. They despise the commands and the rule of Jesus. Because as we talked about last week, these false teachers, they claim to be Christians. They sit in the church next to others, and they've, the Bible even said they've been bought by the master into his household. However, this claim of identification with Jesus is superficial. It's only surface deep. And we know this because these teachers refuse to follow God's laws and God's commands. They refuse to acknowledge the authority of Jesus over his life over their life. And so it's obvious they despise him. They are not truly with him. 
How can you truly follow a Jesus that you despise and ignore and hate the commands that he gives you? But I think it's easy even for Christians to sometimes fall into this trap. We could possibly do the same of rejecting God's authority. Have you ever found yourself in that trap of not liking something God says, and so you try to reject God's authority? But that's when we know we're often headed for danger. We're often headed for trouble when we find ourselves dealing with that kind of situation. Have you found yourself in a situation like that where you're rejecting God's authority? Well, that's where these false teachers start. That's where their headspace is. It often starts out by asking, did God really say and then go and do the thing you want to do, right? It's always back to the Garden of Eden, always back to that serpent, the devil. Did God really say I should or shouldn't do this? And then we find an excuse to go do it. But for Peter's false teachers here, this is a defining mindset. This is how they always think, always operate. It's constant. So they have this despising authority, but then second, we're told they have a bold mentality, an arrogant mentality, and when you translate this as bold, it doesn't capture the full meaning of the term. The, the full meaning of the term is rash or reckless. They have a reckless mentality, an arrogant mentality. That's how these guys think. They hate authority and they think recklessly, arrogantly. They have a strong arrogance about God, about life. Everything is self-centered. It's all about them and themselves. And proving their arrogant mentality we see that they slander. It says because they think like this, because they have this arrogant thought process, they slander. And that's in verse, verse 11 there. And this part of the passage is kind of difficult to understand on the surface. And what Peter is actually saying is that these false teachers are so reckless that they go and they slander and they disrespect demons. I don't know if you did. You, you might not have caught that just by the read-through, but they go and they slander demons as though they have any real power over these demons. But in reality, who does have the power over the demons? It's Jesus, and it's the name of the Lord who has power over them. But this slander, this recklessness, you can can think, how reckless do you have to be to go and to mock demons and make fun of them? But this is in contrast to the angels. Because the angels, it says in verse 11, However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. That's, they do not bring a slanderous charge against their fallen counterparts, against the demons, in the same way that the false teachers do. So they're arrogant, they're boastful, they're prideful, and even the angels would not go so far as to mock demons in the way that these false teachers do. And you see this in Jude 9. So in Jude 9, it talks about the archangel Michael. It says, Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, not Michael rebuke you. And so this, I think, this is just an interesting story, right? Did you guys ever realize that this is in the Bible? that Michael argued with Satan over the body of Moses? Like, did you ever realize that's in the Bible? It's interesting, right? I don't know what that looked like exactly. That might make a neat movie. It might not make as neat a movie if they were just talking. If they were fighting, maybe that would have made a neat movie. But anyway, this is, this is in the Bible. And the scripture here, the point being, when Michael goes and he rebukes Satan for what Satan is doing for the evil, he doesn't even 
rebuke him in his own name. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And so these false teachers, it's not about the Lord rebuking. It's about them trying to do it. They think they have the power and the authority because they despise the authority of the Lord. What extreme arrogance, what extreme recklessness that they have. And the root sin here, what's at the heart of all this mentality, is pride. They're overcome by pride. That's at the heart of it. And so mark that down and remember it. What is their thought process? As much as anything, it all comes back to pride. And this is characteristic of of God's enemies. You look at an example in Scripture. Herod, right? We all know there were various Herods, but they were all arrogant. They all had great pride. In Acts 12, 21, look what happens when Herod was overcome with pride and exalted himself above God. The Scripture says, On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them, and the assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a God and not a man. And at once an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms, and he died. So Herod had this incredible pride, where he allowed the people to worship him as though he were some sort of God and not a man. And what did God do to him? What was the reward for his arrogance and his pride? He was killed. He died. But this is the prideful mentality. What Herod thought here This is the mentality of the people Peter is trying to counter. And this is also the mentality of false teachers in our day. It's it's not different. This is still how false teachers think. And honestly, pretty much all non-believers think this way to some degree. Because if we could sum up the mindset of those who hate God in one word, what would that word be? Pride, right? And we see this all over our culture, pride. Pride this, pride that, pride in my sin. Well, this is the mentality of opposition to God. But contrast this and the way these false teachers and the way secular society thinks. Contrast that now with the Christian mindset. How are Christians called to think about these things in a biblical way? Well, we're called to honor and respect the authority of Jesus over all aspects, all aspects of our life, And we take pride in what Jesus did on the cross. It's not about taking pride in what we do or something we can do. It's about what Jesus did. And Paul really tries to emphasize this. In Galatians 6.14, he talks about taking pride in Jesus. He says, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. So what does Paul tell you to boast about? the cross. You boast about Jesus, not about ourselves. And you think back to this week. Think back to the things you've been doing this week. Maybe if you're like me, it's kind of been a blur. It all kind of just, and it was gone, right? It feels like two days instead of seven. But think back to this week. What have you found yourself boasting about? Have there been things that you've been boasting or prideful in this week? Were those things Jesus Or were those things that you have done? Did you have the mentality of arrogance and pridefulness in self? Or of seeking to bring attention to Jesus and bring glory and honor to him? Because I think as Christians, one one thing we can learn from this mindset of these false teachers is that our mentality must be the exact opposite. Their mentality is to bring attention to themselves and their own sin and their own life. But our mentality is to bring attention to Jesus.
to bring him glory and honor. There can't be a more clear difference. We magnify Jesus. We glorify him. We honor him. Because the mindset of pride, the mindset of, of, of arrogance, leads to destruction in these false teachers. And so one, we see their mindset, we see it to be incorrect, we see it to be false. But then let's actually think, what does this mindset lead to? What kind of sins do they specialize in? So number two, first we got the mindset of the false teachers, but then you got the sin of the false teachers. And so Peter here goes on to start describing a bunch of their sin, and it's kind of meshed in there throughout this. And so what do they specialize in? Well, all types of sin. Their lives, just in general, are marked by a hatred for God. But there are particular things here that Peter wants to point out. Particular sins that are the most common and enticing among the false teachers. The first and foremost is their frequent sexual sin. There's a lot of descriptors in this passage that give us a vivid illustration of how bad their sin is in this area. So let's look at a few. Let's think about a few. Verse 10, it says they follow the polluting desires of the flesh. Because these false teachers, like everyone who's apart from Jesus, are slaves to their sin, and so they follow the polluting desires of the flesh. We're all born with this, the sinful fleshly inclinations. But the false teachers indulge in such inclinations. They like this. This is what they live for. There's no turning away from sexual sin. There's no battle against sexual sin like you would see in the life of a Christian. There's simply indulgence in it and in ignoring God's authority over it. So that, and then in verse 13, he goes on to say they carouse in broad daylight. I find that that an interesting word. But that word for carouse in broad daylight, he says that means to entertain together, right? So together in front of the church, In front of the true believers in the church, they show off their sexual sin. Because often, you think about this, often a lot of times, people try to engage in in these kind of sins at night or in secret, right? You don't want people to know about it, so we do it in secret. But these guys are so brazen about it, they put it out in the open, in broad daylight. They're just going to do it, and they're going to flaunt it. They're so brazen in this debauchery, in this sin. They put it right out in front of everyone, and everyone knows about it, and they don't even bother to hide it. It's just out there. This is who they are because they want to lure Christians, and we'll talk about this idea of luring and baiting in a little bit, but they want to lure Christians into their sin along with them. Now, in our day, as we think about false teachers, not all of them are so open about this type of sexual sin. Some hide it in order to maintain their ruse, but not all. Many are indeed this open. In verse 14, it goes on to say about this sin, they have eyes full of adultery. Their eyes are so adulterous, they can't even look at a woman without viewing her as a potential object of their adultery. And this indicates their their frauds. They have no moral self-control. Their lust is overpowering. It's insatiable. And sexual sin, again, this whole topic has grown to be extremely promoted in our culture. It's extremely open, extremely promoted, just the way these guys were doing it in Peter's day, just as they were. For us as Christians, again, these sort of sins are are a temptation and a common temptation. But as Christians, we have to stand ready to reject them. And we're called to put to death 
the desires of the flesh, Scripture says. We put them to death, we turn away from evil, and we turn to Jesus. And when we fail, we look to Jesus for our forgiveness. That is not something that these false teachers are going to do with their lust and their sexual desires. So that's number one, is they specialize in sexual sin, open in the broad daylight. Number two, they're greedy for money. Did you catch that? As we talked along in here, they're greedy. They want money. In verse 14, it says they have eyes full of adultery. We talked about that. But then they seduce unstable people, and they have hearts trained in greed. They have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse. They've gone astray by abandoning the straight path. They've followed the path of Balaam, the son of Besor, who loved the wages of wickedness. He loved the wages of wickedness. He's the example. But I want to I talk about this word, because when it says they have hearts trained in greed... This is a word which is used for an athlete training himself in a sport. So if you're training yourself for a race, you practice running, right? If you're training yourself for weightlifting, you practice weightlifting. These false teachers are so greedy, they train themselves in how to be more greedy. That is their, that is their sin. It is so all-consuming. They literally train themselves as an athlete would train himself for a sport. That's what the word insinuates here. And the idea here is that there is this false teacher or many false teachers who have trained their heart to focus, focus intently on accumulating money. That is their life goal. Accumulate money, accumulate possessions. Their life has been consumed by this to destroy their conscience, to train themselves to sin better. That's pretty wild. But therefore, this greed, what is it? It's not just a momentary lapse of reason. It's a premeditated sin. This is what they want. This is what they focus on. This is what they think about. It didn't just pop out into the open one day. This is what they focus on. But Peter, he goes back to the book of Numbers. Did you see the example he gives there? In order to give an example of a historical figure who is just like these false teachers, he goes back to the book of Numbers. And he recalls the story of Balaam, a false prophet who was also motivated by financial greed. Now, when you think of Balaam, what do you think about? What's, what's the common thought? Talking donkey. He had a talking donkey. And that is important. But for the purposes here, the point is to show how that donkey even rebuked Balaam for his greed and for his arrogance and his lifestyle. So let's remember the story. Let's go back a little bit here, and I want to give you a quick recap. As the Israelites are about to enter the promised land, they're on the verge of the promised land. And as they're about to go in, many of these, there's all these local pagan tribes around them that live in the promised land that they've been called to go in and wipe them out and inherit that land as it was promised to Abraham. But as they're preparing to go in, there's this guy by the name of Balak. He's the king of Moab, distant relatives of the Israelites themselves. But he decides to bring in this prophet for hire whose name is Balaam. He brings him in to try to stop the military threat that's posed by Israel. But Balak paid Balaam a very high wage to go and put a curse on Israel. Okay, So he pays him a ton of money. He says, go and curse Israel. But God intervenes. He doesn't allow this to happen. He's not going to allow him to curse Israel. And he forces Balaam instead to bring a blessing upon Israel. So if you go read the story, that's kind of neat how God just turns him and says, no, you will not curse my people. You will bless them instead. But if it had been up to Balaam, that's not what would have happened. He would have cursed Israel. 
And by extension, he would have cursed God because they're the people of God. And so he would have cursed Israel in exchange for all this ill-begotten money and wealth. That was Balaam's goal. And as a way to rebuke Balaam, then God causes the donkey to speak to him. And this was after the donkey, by the way, had saved Balaam's life because there's this angel of the Lord blocking the path and the donkey refuses to walk toward the angel of the Lord. It walks away and in doing so, saves Balaam. In Numbers 22, let me read you this little section. It says, Numbers twenty-two twenty-three, The angel of the Lord asked Balaam, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Because Balaam gets mad. The donkey won't go and he beats him. He says, look, I came out to oppose you because I I consider what you are doing, what Balaam is doing, to be evil. The donkey saw me and turned away from from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you now and let her live. So Balaam, he's so overcome with greed, with madness, that the real rebuke here is that an animal had more common sense than he did. The animal knew to turn away, and the animal could see better than he could. That's the other rebuke on him. The animal can see better than this man who's blinded by his greed, and the animal has more common sense than this man who's blinded by his greed for money. And so Balaam is just turned into a fool, and this is God's judgment on that. And I feel if we are greedy for money in the same way, God will rebuke us in a similar way, and he will make us look like fools. And so it is with the false teachers of Peter's time. Their greed has overcome them. Their greed has blinded them. They've become fools, unable to think clearly. For us as Christians, how do we think about money? In Matthew 6.24, Jesus is very clear. He says, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so let that be the warning to us. We must not be greedy. We must seek first the kingdom of God, seek God's glory, and everything else will be provided for us. Our goal is not to be greedy and seeking after money. Our goal is to seek God and seek his glory. So these false teachers have adultery, sexual sin, and money. But third, the, false, the last thing I want to point out here with these false teachers is their sin of they are trying to seduce the unstable. Now, this is a little different. This isn't a particular area like money or, or sex, but this is what they're trying to do. This, this sin is different. They're trying to essentially draw you in to their sin. They do it, and they want company, and so they're going to bring you in as well. They're so deep in this, they want to drag others along with them to make themselves feel better and to have company in their evil. And perhaps you've noticed this tendency in people. I notice this oftentimes, or even in myself. I notice this tendency. We, when we are in sin, we want to drag others into it with us so that we feel better about our awful decisions. And that's what these guys specialize in. It's not just that they do it here and there. It's that this is, again, a goal for them. A goal is to drag in Christians along with them. And Peter Guess what? This is, this is what's another thing that's really cool about the text. Peter did what for, for an occupation? What was his job? Fisherman. So if you look in verse 14, Peter says, they seduce unstable people. They seduce unstable people. That's their goal is to seduce you in. And he uses a fishing term here. 
This term for seduce means to catch with bait. So it means to like throw out the bait, you catch an unsuspecting person, and you lure them into your sin. They catch the unstable people with their bait. That's what Peter is saying these false teachers do. Those who don't know scripture very well, they're going to throw some bait out and see if you bite. Those who aren't in prayer with God, they're going to throw some bait out and they're going to see if you bite. They're going to throw it out wherever they can and pull in whoever they can. Whatever person, whatever fish is willing to bite, they're going to bring you in so that you're just like them. And they're going to seek to grow their ranks of people opposing God. But even more than that, here's one other thing to think about. They're not just seeking to pull you in so that you'll do sins alongside them so that their evil will have company. They're seeking to pull you in so that they can take advantage of you. They can capitalize on you and basically take you for the sucker that they want you to be. They want to pull you in and capitalize on you. So they want to have company, but they also want to use you. Luke 17, 1 through 2. Jesus said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. This is what they're doing. They're seeking to cause others to stumble. They're seeking to capture you, bring you in with them. But the punishment is great. It would be better if they were thrown into the sea. It would be better, as we'll see here at the end, if they had never pretended to follow Jesus. And our false teachers, this is exactly what they're doing. They're trying to cozy up with you. They want your attention. In verse 13, it even says that they are feasting with the believers. They are infiltrating in order to deceive you. So what can we do? If this is what they're doing, if this is what they're like, this is their mindset, this is their sin, how can we defend? How can we defend against being dragged into it along with them? What can we do? Well, I think it's all about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You've got to let the Holy Spirit start to shape your heart and your mind so that we are not unstable, so that we don't jump on the bait and bite the bait as they throw it out to us. Because the unstable are spiritually weak. They don't know their doctrine. They don't read their Bibles. And so when the bait goes out, they bite. And so we've got to know our scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to not just know it, but let let that scripture permeate throughout our bodies and our lives and our week and what we're doing on a daily basis. And when that begins to happen, we no longer take the bait. By God's protective power over us, we no longer take the bait. So let's recap then. Who are these false teachers? Their mindset is pride. They frequent sexual sin, money sin, and they seek to feast on the weak as they pull you in with them. But now contrast that again with the Christians. How are we called to think of God's commands? Psalm 119, 166, this is the longest chapter in Scripture. This is how we're to think of God and his commands. The psalmist says, Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I carry out your commands. I obey your decrees and love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your decrees for all my ways are before you. You can tell here, the psalmist is saying he genuinely loves God's law. He's not saved by it, but he genuinely loves it. And so do you genuinely love the commands that God is giving you the way this psalmist does? Not do you keep them perfectly, but do you have a growing love for what God is calling you to do? 
If so, we can oppose these false teachers. We can be defending against them. Now here, number three, we've talked about the uh, mindset of the false teachers. We talked about their sin. But here's the pinnacle, the lie. The lie that they're pointing out. This is kind of where I see the pinnacle of this whole chapter being. This, I think, is the main point. The descriptors of who these false teachers is clearly laid out. They'll lead you to hell. They'll lie to you, plain and simple. What they'll offer you is not God. But then here's the point. They promise you freedom and deliver you to slavery. Verse 17. These people are springs without water. Mists driven by a storm, the gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce. There's that seduce again, the bait. With fleshly desires and debauchery, people who have barely escaped from those who live in air. Here's, here's the crux, verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves. Slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. They promise you freedom, but they deliver you into slavery. And this is, I think, why, why Peter is getting so animated. Again, why does Peter spend 22 verses talking about this? Because Peter is a shepherd, and the flock is in danger. The flock is in danger of being suckered away and pulled away by these false teachers. So put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute. What do you do if you're Peter? And you see all these false teachers running around out there committing their sexual sins and greedy for money and trying to pull your congregation along with them. What do you do if you're Peter? You protect, right? You step in the void and you preach God's word because these people, their eternal destiny is at risk. It's not just this life here on earth. Peter recognizes there's something even greater at stake. They are at risk of being spiritually enslaved by those who are pretending to offer them freedom. And so he's got to step in the void, right, and protect, protect his people. So have you noticed so far, Peter hasn't mentioned too much about the doctrine of these false teachers. We've, we've seen, yeah, the sinful lifestyles they promote, but what are their false teachings? What exactly are they saying? We're going to look a little more at this next week uh, because there's several elements to this. For one, they're denying the return of Jesus. They're denying that he will come again, that there will be a second coming. But here, we also see another big hint of what they're actually saying, what their rotten teachings are all about. Because at the core of their false teachings, they're, they're closely tied in with their pet sins. This all comes together. But these false teachers are trying to lead others, I believe, to not care that God cares about their moral decisions, right? To think that you can do as you please and God will just forgive you, right? They use this message of Christian freedom and they take it as a license to do whatever they want. They take a true doctrine. They understand that we are saved by faith alone, but then they take that true doctrine and they are distorting it to mean something it doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want, go sin however you want. So they take something good and they turn it rotten. Do you see how they're doing that? They're taking a true aspect of Scripture and they're turning it into something completely evil. And so I want to talk for a moment. Understanding salvation by faith alone is at the core of understanding Scripture. We've got to understand that. And in a sense, they get this, but they don't fully 
But for us as Christians, how are we to understand that salvation is indeed by faith alone? Scripture talks about this repeatedly. I want to read you a couple. Galatians 2.16. Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Pretty clear. He goes on to say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, this is a very famous passage. He says, For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. It is not of works so that no one can boast. So if you're here, you're trying to figure out, well, how would I follow Jesus? How would someone follow Jesus? How do you become a Christian? Well, this is the answer. You repent, you turn from sin, you trust in Jesus alone. The righteousness of Jesus is given to you, achieving your salvation. Your good works don't bring you salvation, but the lifelong perfect works of Jesus granted to you will bring you salvation. That is the key. And the false teachers, they seem to understand this in some part. They seem to teach this in some part. But then they put in this wicked little twist. And they go, okay, I've been reading Paul's letters. I see that we are saved by faith alone. And now we're saved by faith. We're free. We're free in Christ. We're not saved by the law. So we can go And we can live however we want. And we can be greedy. That's what they're saying. And we can go have sexual activity as we please. And we can have an arrogant mentality toward life and toward God. And we can do all these things. This is what they're saying. Have you ever heard this? Yeah, this is still around. Nothing's new under the sun. This teaching is still out there. Whatever seems fun, go and do it. Because we are free in Jesus, that's their mindset. That's the sin, the evil thought process that they're promoting. But this kind of thinking is completely backwards. This is completely unbiblical, completely backwards, because as Peter makes clear here, they're actually not free. They've actually become slaves to their sin. They've become slaves to their bodily impulses. It's ironic because the very thing they promote, they are offering you the opposite. They have wanted to promote freedom, and they have instead promoted slavery. Romans 6, 15-16, Paul addresses this very question. He's having to deal with this same question of people going, well, if we're saved by faith, then how are we to live? And he says, what then? Should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Should we? Absolutely not. That's his answer. Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. He's saying when you offer yourself to those sins, when you succumb to them, you are a slave to them. And so being saved by faith is a core Christian doctrine, but it's not a license to sin, not by any stretch of the imagination. And if you've been born again, your heart will begin to turn against sin. You'll begin to hate it. And you'll start to hate it more and more as time goes on. And you won't desire to live in the wicked way that Peter's false teachers lived. Thinking that the free gift of Jesus in salvation is an opportunity for sin could show 
that maybe you don't really know Jesus at all. We talked about these guys despise the authority of Jesus. They despise his lordship. And if we go to him and we think this is an opportunity to sin now, maybe we don't know Jesus at all if we're so confused about what he's calling us to do and what he's asking us to do. And this is where the false teachers were at. Although they called themselves Christians, they were chained by their sinful passions. They wanted to take others with them. So this is the question for you now. Let's bring it home and let's analyze it. How do you feel about your sin? What does it do to you? Does it grieve you because it grieves God? Not does it grieve you because you'll be punished for it, but does it grieve you because it grieves God? Or do you find yourself making excuses to continue to practice the sin? Think of a sin that has beset you, that's troubled you. Does it grieve you as you try to turn away from it, as you ask God to free you from that sin? Or do you indulge in it? Do you find excuses to continue to practice it? I think as Christians, this is one of the biggest things we can learn from from this passage, from these false teachers, is that we cannot fall for this lie leading to slavery. We cannot fall for this trap of, oh, you're saved by, by faith, and it's only God's gift, and so live however you please. We can't fall for that trap. How do you feel about your sin? The last thing here, we see the lie. The last thing, and I want to only briefly touch on this because we did talk about this last week, But number four, there is judgment on the false teachers. The judgment will fall upon them. All this evil, all this sin, they don't escape. Now there may be a time, there may be a time where they get away with this for a little while, but at the end of the day, no. God will issue judgment. Judgment will fall on the the false teachers. And you've seen that language all throughout this chapter. Remember, Peter gets so animated. He just, you start throwing out all these phrases. Think of what he says about them. What's going to happen to them? We're told throughout this chapter, number one, they'll be destroyed. They'll be caught like animals. Caught like an animal? Paid back with harm. The gloom of darkness will be reserved for them. They are children under a curse, he said. They are spots and blemishes. That's a lot of strong language. I hope, hope you're not, not calling me a spot or a blemish most of the time, right? But this is the way Peter's talking about them. He goes, those guys that told you that, they're a spot, they're a blemish, they're under a curse, they're like a bunch of wild, crazy animals over there. So I think you're getting the picture. But now let's bring it full circle. Let's say, what is their fate? That's who they are. What's their fate? Well, first, verse 20. We're reminded they're outwardly religious people. They're outwardly Christians, but the church can be infiltrated. He says, For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things that defeat them. The last state is worse for them than the first. And so in pursuing Christianity, there is a sense, a limited sense, I would say, in which they escaped the impurities of this world for a time. They had an accurate awareness about Jesus, but they did not have a saving knowledge of Jesus. And so their efforts ultimately resulted in a temporary, superficial moral reform. It did them no good. This moral reform was devoid of true faith. It was devoid of repentance. They never stopped worshiping themselves. But then we go on to see that the false teachers, they ended up worse off. Did you catch that? They ended up worse off than they would have been if they had never pretended to follow Christ 
if they had never tried to integrate themselves into the church body falsely. Those who understand the truth and turn away face a far greater judgment. Verse 21, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. Knowing Jesus' teaching, that makes them doubly accountable. That's scary, but they're doubly accountable. They'd have been better off just living off in pagan land and never pretending, never infiltrating, never trying to get into the church. Because third, they will always eventually return to their sinful ways. Verse 22, it has happened to them, according to this true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. Maybe you've, you recognize that proverb. That's, that's right from Scripture there. He's quoting from the Old Testament. But you've probably seen this too. You've seen a dog go and they just eat up their own vomit. You've seen pigs returning to wallow in the mud. You can clean them off, but what do they do? They go right back to the mud. And Peter's comparison here is unmistakable. False teachers will go back to their old ways. And they are the epitome of spiritual uncleanliness and smut. A disgusting end for these false teachers. What becomes of them? They become like a dog eating vomit. That is what God thinks of them. That is what becomes of them. Now all this put in perspective, what's the truth? I want to lead us back kind of to that number three. An essential truth, I think, if we're going to focus on what do we take out of this passage, It's that those who use freedom in Jesus as an excuse for sin are deceived. That is the big push here. These false teachers use freedom in Jesus as an excuse for sin, and they are deceived. That is not true. And so let's make a hard examination of ourselves at this point. Are you abusing your freedom in Jesus as an excuse to sin? I don't know the lives of each of you, but I'm asking you to to think about yourself in this. Do you use your freedom in Christ to do the wrong thing? Or is your greatest desire to please God? Is your greatest desire to please God? Or is it to please yourself? Where is your heart at? The call to response in regards to this is for all of us as Christians, and I I know most of y'all here are Christians, so what do we got to do? Let the Holy Spirit grow you in your love for God's law and God's commands. Remember, the psalmist said, how I love your precepts. I love your commands. And so what must we do? We must allow the Holy Spirit to grow us in our love for God's law and our love for God's commands because we cannot do that ourselves. We, in and of ourselves, do not automatically grow to love God more. That is something that the Holy Spirit does within us. And so we go before the Lord and we pray and we ask Would you, Lord, by the power of your spirit, change my heart, change me to love you more, change me to love your commands, love worshiping you more than I love worshiping myself. That's where we've got to be every day as Christians, every day as a church, is to go before him and ask for the Holy Spirit to renew us and to change us because that is the only way we will avoid these false teachers. We will avoid being pulled into their snare and their deceit. We go before God And we trust on his Holy Spirit. He is the one who will save us and he is the one who will sanctify us. That means to make us holy, right? To make us righteous. He will do all that. John 8, 31 through 32. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, 
you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you see the connection there? If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You are not like those false teachers who jumped in and pretended to be my disciples. And what will the end result be? The truth will set you free. The freedom those false teachers offered is no freedom at all. It's a slavery. But who will set you free? Jesus. And so we look to Jesus. And so by God's grace, let's continue to aim toward him today. Let's continue to look to Jesus and trust in him. That's all we can do today and throughout the week is trust in Jesus, point our eyes, turn our eyes to him, and allow him to lead us. Let's pray. Lord, we we come before you and we confess, Father, that we are a people who is prone to being taken captive by bad ideas, by false teachings. We confess, Lord, that we're prone to being taken prisoner by our own sinful desires, our own hearts that look for other things. We look for pleasure in things apart from you. And Lord, we know that we constantly come back disappointed. We constantly come back disappointed, angry at ourselves, because Lord, we have failed you. But Lord, we pray today, we confess our sin. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that as we look to trust you more, you would help us see what does it mean to trust you more? What does it mean to look to you every day as our source of goodness, as our source of salvation? Lord, help us to be rid of our trust in ourselves. Help us to be rid of our worship for ourselves. I pray for every single one of us as we go out this week that we would look to you to guide us that we would stop worshiping ourselves, that we would stop thinking and somehow make it apart from you. But Lord, help us direct every aspect of our lives to you. Every aspect of what we do, may it fall under your banner for the glory of Jesus, for the glory of his kingdom. Lord, your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts, and we pray that you would help us to be more and more true day by day, that day by day our hearts would be turned to you, our hearts would look to you, for peace, and for joy. Because, Lord, we find joy nowhere else but in you and in the great things you have given us. So, Lord, may we rejoice in you today, and we thank you for the wonderful work of your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.